This is Polyoptics. Shining a light on the theater of politics. Now, from Washington, D.C., here's Adam Belmar. Thanks for joining us as we pull back the curtain on the events that shape American politics and drive the images and headlines. Polyoptics, the only show of its kind on the air today, and it's only on POTUS, Politics in the United States. This week, experience versus optics. Kerry v. Rice for Secretary of State. And North Korea lets one fly while American Patriot missiles move into Turkey. Stark contrasts and weighty images. On the broadcast to discuss the week and so much more, the ad maker and show producer behind Romney for President, Rush Schrieffer, fresh from Boston and here in our D.C. studios, will get inside the polyoptics with the man at the top of Republican strategy and media on four of the last five presidential campaigns. And then one of Washington's most respected presidential watchers, the longest-serving print bureau chief in Washington, D.C., Tom DeFrank of the New York Daily News. But first, I'm joined from New York by my co-host, Josh King, co-founder of the website polyoptics.com. And, of course, Josh was production chief in the Clinton administration, the same role I played for George W. Bush. Josh, it's great to be back with you. Adam, great to be with you. Just finished my last trip to London for the year, where the big story continues to be the hoax call by the Australian radio what team a tragedy. into the, into the uh, hospital where Catherine Middleton, or, or the Duchess of Cambridge, uh, was, uh, was recuperating. And it is a, it is a terrible tragedy, uh, but it, it continues to obsess Fleet Street and the tabloids, um, and was all the, the talk there. Then I fly home and uh, finally, as we touch down at JFK, turn the cell phone on and see all the news alerts. Breaking news, Susan Rice has asked President Obama to withdraw her name from consideration for Secretary of State. A momentous occasion, perhaps, but I think behind the scenes, probably, as we might hear later on from some of our guests, uh, the way Washington actually works. That's right. Uh, as I just said in our open, experience versus optics, carry versus rice. You know, it's been 15 years since a white man served as Secretary of State, and three of our last four have been females. Uh, Rush Schrieffer, bring you right in right away. Uh, the optics as it plays out in this pre-inaugural, post-election, second-term calculus and chess that the president's doing. What, what's your feeling on how this went down and, and uh, her withdrawal yesterday? Well, uh, thank you guys for uh, for having me on, and and certainly appreciate the t- the time. Um, I I think the optics on this is that the White House made a very calculated decision, and they decided that they didn't want to have a contentious nomination. They didn't want to have a contentious hearing over uh, Benghazi. They didn't want to go into that and have lots of questions being asked under under uh, cross examination by by uh, senators. In fact, I believe even Senator McCain was asking to serve on the uh, Foreign Relations Committee in order to question um, uh, Mrs. Rice uh, for for uh, for her nomination hearing. And so I think they made a simple decision. Um, we don't want to deal with that now. Now there's there's too many other things going on. And uh, let's 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 move on. You know, Mrs. Rice can stay where she is at the U.N. and let's find somebody that can get uh, nominated and confirmed uh, without any drama. But, uh, Ross, I'm not sure how many U.N. uh, ambassadors stay for more than four years. And talk to me because you've seen it so many times throughout your career about uh, honor and loyalty and and the 
sense that you might owe someone something versus the practicality of bringing someone like John Kerry, who has so many friends on both sides of the aisle in the Senate, Chuck Hagel, uh, perhaps for the Pentagon. You might think that Susan Rice, who came to work with you in 2007, 2008, as you were getting ready for your campaign, has worked loyally uh, at, in New York uh, at, at, the, uh, at the UN, and in the same vein that Madeleine Albright made her switch uh, and served as President Clinton's Secretary of State after uh, the UN, this would be her opportunity uh, for a second term, and yet practical realities are that, oh, just put Kerry in there because uh, he's going to sail through in front of McCain and his Republican uh, friends in the Senate. Sure. Um, listen, I think that, I mean, you know, loyalty is, is, is very important. And um, Adam knows that, uh, you know, I work for George President Bush, George W. Bush on the campaign and known him for a long time. And they were really, in terms of a leader, there was very few that were that loyal to staff and to loyal to people that, that had worked with him over the years. But I also think that loyalty is a two-way street and that part of if you're going to be playing at this sort of high level of uh, of politics, um, that if you were appointed or if you become a distraction or if you become the issue in a uh, situation like Mrs. Rice, for better or for worse, uh, has become, it's it's your loyalty to the president is to say, you know what, I'm going to take a pass on this now. It's going to be too contentious too tough and you have too many other big things going on and on your plate in order to be dealing with this right now. Josh really uh, brings up this very interesting point about the uh, uh, the understudies, the deputies, the loyal uh, crew who have been a part of the Obama administration or any administration for so long and what it is to morph into a second term. You were involved, and I want our audience to understand as they're listening to us here on, on POTUS, Sirius XM 124, that you don't hear this name, Rush for that much because you're not in the rarefied circles where he's operating. But what you know of his work is, is pretty obvious, I and mean, it's been part of the dialogue, a part of campaigns. What were you thinking about in 2004? Take us back to the last time you were involved in a second-term campaign that sort of parallels in an interesting way uh, what your opponent was dealing with as you went through 2012 with Mitt Romney. Sure. Uh, the, you know, the Bush campaign in, in 2004, I mean, we were uh, – it was, it was really a very – in many ways a very simple strategy. It was – did you believe that George Bush had made kept America safe and was going to be able to continue to keep America safe? That was the big strategic question. If we answered that question successfully, we knew or we had we knew that uh, President Bush had the best chance of winning. If the campaign moved off to other issues and was was distracted by other issues, then our uh, the president's chances would have been, I think, less good. Uh, and I think you take a look at what the president talked about and how he, he he worked over the over the ten months. It was it was very concentrated on the on the war on terror and keeping America safe. Uh, you know, our convention that year in 2004, it was at Madison Square Garden in New York City. Uh, obviously, the symbolism of that was 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 uh, was immense. That was um, that was one of the most uh, polyoptically polished and just amazing pieces of political theater that I can remember. Do you agree with that? 
I, I do, Adam. Um, you know, and and uh, I think that you had a couple of things uh, going for us that time. First of all, it was in New York, mm-hmm. in the backdrop of New York City post nine eleven, to have a Republican convention, to have uh, some of the key figures who were involved in September eleventh, and 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 the part of the, the narrative after. that was being retold there. Um, we uh, we were able to bring them in, and they were to talk about it. In fact, a couple of interesting things. One is we had to really limit the number of references to 9-11 at the convention because otherwise that would be all people wanted to talk about. Right. Um, secondly, there was a couple of moments, and I don't know if you, you know this story, just in terms of the optics, the famous uh, bullhorn uh, photo. Right. The president. Of president uh, Bush uh, with his arm around the firefighter. Um, we only used that once during the four nights of the convention. We kind of held it. And we only used it at the last night, right before President Bush spoke. And the idea was is not to overuse that image and not to overuse a lot of these images during the week. So we really kept it, you know, uh, uh, in, in in the background. And then we bookended the uh, the convention in many ways. With early in the convention was the, one of the first speakers was was uh, uh, former Mayor Giuliani. And he was able to sort of kick it off and really frame up what we wanted to do that week. And then as the week continued, um, the last we had uh, Governor Pataki be the last person who spoke right before the president spoke that night. So it was it, it was it was constructed to uh, to tell the story, but to not overtell it either. And that was really an important balance, I think, that we had to uh, uh, come up with that year in 2012. uh you took on the the same challenges again from the very beginning part of helping to create and sustain uh, a narrative to try and get uh, Governor Romney elected president. And you met with a tremendous amount of success in the areas that, that you worked on. Now, I realize that stands in the face of a loss in the election. Sure. I was lucky enough to, to work with you just a little bit uh, throughout this campaign and put my efforts in other places, too. But I wonder if you'd share with people um, when you started to think about, okay, here I am again in charge of really creating every last element of a presidential convention, a national convention, and then the optics around advertising and messaging. How did you change your opinions and your your thought process and your strategic goal uh, from what you've done in the past to what you were executing uh, these past months? Um, sure, it's. Uh, I think the, the the key difference is the one is is the difference between a, a reelect and a, and a challenger. And a challenger, I think, has to be uh, even more aggressive, has to be uh, uh, fresher looking in many ways. And I think really interesting thing is that in, we. we we started in uh, with the design of the hall and the design of the stage. And what kind of stage did we want? We wanted something that was going to be, you know, warm, something that was going to have a, a feeling of intimacy, something that we were going to be able to use uh, the screens as a, as, a, as a great backdrop. And uh, along with the set designers uh, out of New York, some you know, some brilliant set set designers uh, in New York, this guy Eddie Krasnick is genius, uh, came up with a very modern, warm, intimate set uh, that really uh, was able to, you know, I think, b- blow people away in well, terms of the Well, that's where they look. landed. But, you know, I had a chance to be with you in some of the, the early 
conceptual stages, and you really guided that process because it could have morphed into something that felt a lot more familiar and not as warm or really as sort of innovative uh, a set design as what we ended up with. Was that from you completely? Was that with other people, or was the no, governor this, pushing the, you this the, way? The, the, was, it was all part of the team and, and, and Governor Romney. The first set of designs that were shown to the governor, uh, he wasn't very thrilled with. And he said, look, uh, this is one choice. I get it. And they looked very much like a debate set. And he said, you know, it's just and, – and we also thought it was too cold and too, you know, too sterile. So we went back to the designers and uh, we said, look, you know, we, we, we get what, what version A is. But we want to see, you know, a version B and a version C in order to be able to compare the to compare them. And we want one version that, you know, really do do what you want to do. Do something that you don't think maybe we would even like to do. Um and they presented us back about ten days later, three more designs, and the the design the design that they thought we weren't going to approve, that was sort of the most uh, avant garde design, was the one that everybody loved, and we approved. Uh, A lot of these warm wood tones, and uh, this is sort of Josh. You and I have talked about this. It was like uh, it was like America's living room in a way to sort of see the family story and the things that we didn't know about the governor. Um, and I felt at the time, I was very invested, Josh, in the success of that uh, convention and on the campaign. I was rooting for the governor. I was excited about all the team that Russ had put together and what we were doing, what I was doing to help get us to the to the convention hall. Um, but things don't always go the way you plan, which is sort of what leads me to, to wonder, you know, you, you get the best rundown. Where are you on the final night right before... Uh, the governor is going to take the stage, and we get uh, sort of our, our our surprise guest, Clint Eastwood. I, I imagine you in the control room uh, uh, watching this unfold. Actually, I was I was uh, out front in the hall because I had just watched uh, the film that we the had. Film, done. by the way, was fabulous. Wasn't Thank it? you. Thank you. You know, um, can you can you want to tell people that you were involved in producing that? Yeah, we listen. The film was 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 uh, a great story about the film was that uh, there was a young woman in our in our office uh, who was not even really a full editor. She was an assistant editor who had been uh, collecting family footage of the Romneys over the course of a year and had been doing some short films on the Romney family. And about five weeks before the convention, she had worked out on a string out of just some wonderful, you know, stuff of the Romneys behind the scenes and uh, showed it to me. And I said, you know, I said, her name is Claire Burns. I said, you know, Claire, you know, that's the film. You know, that's what we have to make into the convention film. So she came down to Tampa. Uh, We brought in some folks from a company from called Stellarhead out of uh, California, uh, a guy named Michael Santarelli and his uh, his wife Laurel Harris, and they came in to help us out and, and and piece it together. And we set up a little editing studio in the room right next to my room, so it was adjacent to my room at, in in Tampa. So we would do our stuff during the day, and then I would go back into the room at night and stay up with them until you know two o'clock in the morning, three o'clock in the morning, editing the film and putting it together. Part of the reason that it was it was good is that we really were able to get some stuff of Governor Romney that no one had ever seen before. And, you know, we always believe that the one moment that was the if, if, if folks listening, if, if they haven't seen it, there's one moment when when Mitt Romney is talking about love 
and he says, you know, how do you, you know, you know, how do you explain love? And that Russ um, was doing that at, at nine forty-five or nine fifty on uh, on Thursday night instead of right at the top of the hour, ten o'clock, to tee us up for this moment on stage. Right. So much a matter of of timing and and scheduling. Here, here's the here's here's the. Um, I mean, and listen, we, we had talked a lot about whether or not we should play the film uh, between 10 and 11 o'clock at night. The, the reality was is that we had gone around to all the network producers and we asked them, it's a nine-minute film, will you show it? And uh, the majority of them, the great majority of them said, probably not. We're not going to show it. We may show a clip of it. We may show 30 seconds of it. But the reality is in that 10 to 11 o'clock hour, the networks are looking to get their talent on the air to talk about, you know, what they want to talk about. Uh, It's a big opportunity for them to get their, you know, their top talent up there. And they they see a campaign film as, uh, you know, as 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 campaign propaganda. So, uh, you know, if if I had been told or if we had been told that the that the film, you know, look, we'll take the film nine minutes of it, uh, we, we certainly would have plugged it in then. But, uh, you know, that where not was, happening. Uh, we put where it was him. Phil Alonji and all of that? I and mean, we had Phil on right after. Phil, Phil, Phil was uh, agreed. He said because Phil had, you know, been a producer on the, on the other side of the table and said, look, you know, they, they just don't take these films. We just don't take them. So you're out there in the hall wanting to view it the way that the people in the hall are experiencing it, not just the folks at home who we just established weren't watching that film because they weren't really allowed to unless they were watching C-SPAN or that wall-to-wall coverage. But here you are. Were you involved in in the the genesis of the idea of bringing forward a star like – like Eastwood, and there's lots more to talk about. I don't want to sure. go too far yeah. into this, but no, this is this is. I mean, it's an interesting story. I mean, e, um, we had been approached by some folks about a month earlier, and and said that you know, would you guys be interested if Clint Eastwood was going to come to the convention? Sure, <laughs> you know, you <laughs> know, not? as a as a as a as a party, as 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 we all know, that is sometimes. Uh, is running a bit of a deficit on on celebrity and star power. Um, you know, while the Democrats have, you know, you get George Clooney, Barbara Streisand, Jay Z. You know, and, who are you to turn you know, down? And, uh, and, Clint and, and we're being offered Clint Eastwood. We said great. Um, uh, Mr. Eastwood had been at a fundraiser about uh, in early August. Um, got up and gave some brief remarks and was was fantastic. Uh, talked about uh, some funny stories about Governor Romney uh, when when he was filming Mystic River. Um, governor Romney was running for governor, and he said, "You know, this guy doesn't look like a governor. Might look like a president, though." Mm. Um, used to have this little line. He said, "You know, my friend George Clooney likes to hang out with the president. I want to hang out with the next president." So we had these great lines, and we talked about he was going to talk about taxes, and we had that conversation with him uh, more than once. Uh, and then on the way to the uh, to the stage, he sees the chair and calls an audible. So you, you're, that audible was was news to you when it happened, and 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 it, uh, or did he run it by anybody? He ran it by no one. So you know, it's funny because we 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 see this, especially in a polyoptic sense, because you have very great experience 
and, and, and a lot of different creative minds on projects. You were leading uh, the creative elements of just about every last stitch of this campaign. But talk to people about, you know, it's not just your way or the highway. It is always a meeting of the minds, a series of compromises that helps to make these things happen. It's never just the way that you conceived it. It's always within the context of what else was going on or the, the fact that the rundown was changing. or so. It's very hard to bring something that was pure to life. It's always going to be this product of context in everyone involved. Is that yeah, fair? Yeah, uh, absolutely. And, and and remember the other thing that was uh, impacted the, that convention was the uh, was the hurricane. Was that we had the hurricane hitting that was going to hit Tampa so that the Saturday, really Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday of that convention, the big top news was was the hurricane. And so we had to make the decision on Sunday whether or not we were going to cancel Monday night isn't that interesting that uh, one hurricane messed up the convention and the other one largely destroyed any last shot yeah, at the election? It, it, highly ironic. Um, uh, but, uh, yeah, so we had to make that decision whether or not to cancel. We made that decision based upon uh, some great advice from the Secret Service and from uh, from, from the uh, National Weather Associ- uh, Service. Um, and it was the right call to make. But by doing so, we had to then put – take four nights and condense it into three nights, which meant that everyone got a little bit less time to speak. Things All right. So let me ask yeah, you a question. I said to Josh, yeah. uh, I said, Josh King, I think that uh, this is a little bit like the uh, getting thrown in the briar patch, being able to pare this thing down by a day. Right. Did you, Josh, did you did you buy that when I said it at the time? Well, I knew it was going to be you know incredibly difficult because uh, – uh, you do you do start six months out trying to program for four nights, and if you're told uh, uh, 24 hours out that you need to condense it to three nights, but every producer has the around. stuff they had to put in that they would fill this, but they always in their mind have an idea of what it could look like if we if we jettison some things. Sure. I mean, this is a guy, Josh, who's been doing this more than anyone else in the Republican Party who's alive today. You've done more of these. Yeah. Uh, it, it 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 honestly it, it 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 I sat down for about three hours and really kind of worked the schedule right. for about three hours and then I went to the uh, you know my colleagues at the campaign run the politics and, and, on and, it. And, and and made a presentation. Um, there was a few things and and I, I'm not going to go into sort of exactly what they were, but there's a few things that we could just literally get rid of. Um, there were a few speakers that we had to reshuffle. Um, and what was interesting, again, without naming names, uh, there were some uh, there were some folks who were just absolute rock stars and saying, hey, you're supposed to speak Monday night. Now you're going to speak Friday. And they were like, I mean, Thursday. Uh, they were like, you know, no problem. And then there were other people who would, would say, no, listen, my, you know, my time was my time. You know, you told me eight minutes. I'm not going to do six minutes. And there was a lot of back I can't and forth do six minutes. Yeah. No, listen, I have an eight minute speech, you know, <laughs> uh-huh. and, and we and we have a, um, you know, they, they, they do a, uh, a word count. And I think it's about 50 or 60 words a minute. Right, right. So we have these things timed out and in order to uh, compensate for applause and and people would say no 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 but but I read fast I'll, I'll read it really fast and and oh so God. there was you a lot You only believe that the, once and you've been around this block many times So there's a lot of these uh, conversations that we had had Hey Russ I want to sure. uh, sort of look forward in a way by looking back and thinking that the way Adam and I had started this conversation with you about the fact that you were offered Clint Eastwood uh, and realized that there was a sort of celebrity deficit uh, 
putting ideology aside totally and thinking not necessarily a celebrity deficit, but a, a generational deficit. And, you know, you cut your teeth on George H.W. Bush's campaign. Uh, you worked for Bob Dole in 96 uh, and also uh, George W. Bush and McCain and also Mitt Romney. Now, in so many of those campaigns, except for the when you were working for Governor Bush of Texas, you were dealing with the person who was more advanced in age and a little less nimble as an orator on the stump. And in McCain's case, in Dole's case, significantly uh, underarmed against their opponents. Looking forward, how can the Republicans change this deficit that they have in terms of youth and vigor and connectivity with a voter base that is often junior to their age. Well, I think that um, just generationally, we will be we will be moving on, and then four years from now, it would be shocking that if the I would be surprised that if the our nominee is someone uh, who is in their sixties, it would it, my my guess would be it's going to be someone in their late forties or, or mid fifties. If you kind of take a look at who who who's out there and, and sort of kicking around. Um, you know, listen, I, I think that uh, one of the best presidents uh, who did well with younger voters, right, was 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 Ronald Reagan, who was the oldest president. So I think that young voters, um, if, if connect with a message and I think they connect with a message um, of, of really of like like anyone else of you know who can do self interest who who can put make uh, move our country forward who can make my life better and I think that uh, you know that can be someone who's in their seventies like Reagan or it can be somebody who's in their forties like uh, President Obama was four years ago. The uh, one of the original polyopticians, Rush Schrieffer here on Polyoptics Series Six M One Twenty Four. We've talked about this convention and Josh's forward looking question about what the the party is going to struggle with uh, as we find new candidates uh, leads me to ask you this question. The service that you've given uh, politically is just a part of your story. You, you have a business, the Stephen Schrieffer Group. You, you, you develop all kinds of communications and strategic guidance for corporations. This is what I imagine is for you the day job when when politics isn't always there uh how much do you carry the lessons of one and the other back and forth and does it really make you that much stronger at what you do you know it's interesting adam um we do we do some corporate work but very little we really don't um we have been over the last uh say 10 years uh doing more and more political work because the political campaign cycles have become so much longer so that if you're going to, uh, you know, if you're running for governor, or you're running for Senate, you're not working with these clients for six months. You're working with them for a year and a half. And so what we like to do, and because both um, my business partner, Stuart Stevens, and, and, and myself, you know, like working with candidates, like working, you know, v- you know, very detailed on the message on what the campaign's going to look like, what the candidates are going to say, and how to best deliver the candidate's message uh, to the widest number of people. So uh, the corporate stuff is good, but it's it's really the political stuff informs our work in the corporate world as opposed to the corporate well, world. Well, then give the political us an world. example of that, if you wouldn't mind. Um, the, the ability to uh, have a message, 
I mean, something literally as simple as saying, what is the message of this organization? What is it that you want to say? The ability that you have to, uh, once you develop a message, stick with it for a, a long enough period of time that it's able to sink in and people are able to understand it. You know, we, we talk about in campaigns that there's two things that they have to have. They have to have financial discipline, which means that you have to spend uh, your money uh, wisely and that you can't, uh, if you can't spend money that you don't have and you, have to, you can't spend money on stupid things. Uh, and then the, the second thing is message discipline, and that's the ability to have a message talk about it over and over again and to stay on it so that people understand what the candidacy is about. Josh and I were talking a little bit about the the instant lessons learned that you hear people talk about and that, that drives uh, interestingly with your point about uh, fiscal discipline, about spending what you don't, not spending what you don't have. When you look back at the ad strategies and this idea that you were swamped in terms of spend but also faced an opponent who sought to define you much earlier than right. we than we I say we because I was with with you on this the team sought to define itself or the candidate was this a lesson learned or was this a purely uh, an arms race and and the, and the decisions came to money uh you know, you can only work with what you have, and we finished the campaign we finished the primary campaign at the end of May. Uh, we had very little money in the bank. Uh, we had spent a lot of money to win the primary. Uh, it was, uh, as, as as people know, it was, it was it went on longer than I think anyone had anticipated. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the president had the luxury of four years, and I think he started out with about a hundred million dollar advantage on us, and he used it. He spent that money. I mean, when we went up uh, in June with our first uh, wave of advertising, we went up in four states. That was all we could afford. Uh, we went up in. Uh, uh, Virginia, and we went up in Virginia without the DC market, which is you know a, a big, big chunk of of, of that's of Virginia. Northern Virginia. Northern that's Virginia, a place yeah, where Northern Virginia. The we campaign to... ended up not doing very well. Uh, Josh, I'm going to give you the last bite at the apple. A final question for Rush Reefer. Yeah, Russ. Thanks. I mean, it, it's one thing to be at a deficit of money. It's also another thing to be at a sort of deficit of creativity. And uh, you had one of the most creative, mm. biting, satiric spots of the 2004 campaign with whichever way the wind blows you got some pool footage of John Kerry windsurfing and you reversed it backward and forward and the overlay script was so uh, uh, cut so to the bone on Senator Kerry and it seemed like the tables were turned in 2012 and that when Governor Romney would go from stump speech to stump speech and sing God Bless America and the way that the Obama campaign was able to cut a 30-second spot over that singing with different sort of audio cues to that singing with the uh, graphics that made a, a strong case to define Senator Kerry. It wasn't necessarily the ex- the uh, the magnitude of the ad spend, but it was the creativity or approach of defining your opponent. You put that on YouTube, you send it out to the chattering class, you put it on cable and suddenly it you don't even have to pay for the spots because it's getting so into the mainstream just because of the chatter around how much it cuts to the bone. Well, you know, it's interesting you bring up that ad because we had uh when that first came out we 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 tested it in a bunch of focus groups and we would a lot of our focus groups were with uh 
women who had voted for uh, Obama four years ago and were now undecided. So that was sort of the key group, right? If we were going to win, we had to get, you know, convert a certain percentage of those uh, folks over. And they hated that ad. <laughs> they thought that uh, it was disrespectful. And I think that was a good ad for the uh, probably for the Democratic base. But in terms of people that they were actually trying to move or that they needed to get, that really wasn't the the, the, the ad that did it. I think there was other ads that they did w- were very good. Um, but and again, if we, we if we uh, can talk about this for a long time, I think that the advertising you know, is becoming a, a, a less and less uh, influential role in presidential campaigns because where you're really getting your information from is from the earned media and now also from social media. So we were very we were looking very carefully at not just what was on TV, but what was the buzz on social media and what was on you know Facebook and Twitter and and, and in this world. And we were monitoring that on a day to day by day basis, and that was really fascinating to see how things, how you could use advertising to sort of push your social media and how the two of them would work together. And I think that's going to be something that as we look forward four years from now um, is going to be even something that more people and more campaigns are going to be wanting to make uh, use of. Uh, I don't want to leave this interview without at least asking directly whether uh, the the dressing of the sets, the the backgrounds, the tight shots, whether these things continue to matter as much when we talk about earned media and the events that are carrying us, not just the advertising. Is it still as important as it was? Is it something that campaigns need to... F- and I'm just not just asking this because it's my bread and butter. <laughs> uh, no, I think it's very important. I think that the image that a candidate is portraying on the stump and the image that he's portraying, that the, the shot, the... Because the earned media is so important, uh, the 15-second, 30-second bite that you're going to get on the evening news, which is still, you know, watched and is still driving other news medium, uh, how a candidate looks is incredibly important. And if it's well done and it, 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 the person looks, whether if you want them to look presidential, they look presidential. If you want them to look uh, accessible, they look accessible. I mean, whatever the look that you're going for, I think is incredibly important. Well, thank you for starting this conversation with us today, Russ, and I hope that you will come back. Sure. Anytime. The older we get, the more we begin to understand terms like it's a small world. Well, as you know, here on Polyoptics, uh, I consider myself a true Washingtonian, born and raised in uh, the District of Columbia, parents who came here uh, from various parts of the United States, but my dad was in federal service and working at the Justice Department, and so growing up a son of the city of Washington, D.C., uh, gave me great opportunity to meet and to get to understand a lot about politics. But it was a backyard party, a farewell to a friend of my father's, that first introduced me to our next guest. And uh, the, the, the closeness of his career to what I aspired to at that time is remarkable to me today because I can call him a friend, Tom DeFrank, the longest-serving print Washington bureau chief in Washington, D.C. of the New York Daily News is here with us in studio. Tom, welcome to the broadcast. I'm delighted to be here, Adam. Thank you. Your pal, uh, David Beckwith, a politico of some import and legend in Washington, D.C., was how I first met you, Lo, those many years ago. Well, David, uh, Dave Beckwith uh, is, is, of course, a 
very dear friend, but he was also the best man at my wife and I and my wedding in uh, in 1990. He is a very close friend. As a matter of fact, uh, just two weekends ago, uh, he and I and a, another dear friend, Owen Ullman, who's the managing editor for News at USA Today, were in Las Vegas, where Ullman and I were hosting Beckwith uh, on the occasion of his 70th birthday. Well, you know what? What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, and I don't want to compromise any stories there, but I will ask you to help people understand uh, a little bit about your career as a president watcher for so many presidencies. Uh, I, I have been very fortunate. Some would say it's a dubious distinction, but at the moment I am, I am the the, the longest serving uh, White House correspondent. My first White House briefing was as an intern at Newsweek in June of 1968, and that was so long ago. Uh, there was no White House briefing room. The briefing room was uh, what is now Jay Carney, Carney's office. Uh, it was then Press Secretary George Christian's office. Christian was LBJ's last uh, You just pile right in there. Right. And uh, uh, there were probably two dozen reporters sitting on the floor, sitting on sofas, standing, no cameras, no photographers, and it was really informal. As I recall, no stenographer. They, there was no transcript, much less uh, television. And it was very informal. And as I said, there was no briefing room then. So, so I think that really does make me an ancient person. But I've been uh, going to the White House uh, for briefings and other things since uh, for 40, more than 44 years. The, uh, the, the, the story of being an intern and filing into that office, I think, is probably uh, just the beginning for people who know your work and uh, know that you are a co-author of that uh, legendary book, Bare Knuckles in Back Rooms. Uh, it's a favorite of, of anyone who loves to understand uh, what really goes on behind the scenes in political campaigns. Talk to us for a second about how the presidency, this is a broad brush question, Tom, but you've seen it from, what, Johnson to now, actively. What are the big themes of what's changed and how Washington has morphed? Well, I think the the biggest change, and it is certainly not a change for the better, Adam, is that is is, and this is not a unique observation by me uh, by any means, but the toxicity is just unbelievable. I can remember hanging around with Jerry Ford. My first real break in political journalism came when my boss called me in one day and said, "Nixon's finished. He's a goner." I don't know how long it's going to take, but he can't survive. Ford's going to be president. Ford at the time was vice president. Mm -hmm. And my boss uh, said, um, live with him, live with Ford until he goes to the White House, and then you'll go, go with him. And so I got a real education in, uh, in how Washington politics worked at the time. And Jerry Ford, uh, may he rest in peace, uh, was a was a believed in bipartisanship. He believed that uh, he could beat up every Democratic president he served under, but at certain times the country had to come together and the political apparatus had to come together to do what would be best for the country. Uh, he he got along very well with uh, with Dan Rostenkowski, who was the powerful Democratic House chairman Ways of the House Ways and Means Committee, uh, some of his closest friends. He and Tip O'Neill got along very, very well, Speaker of the House. Uh, but but all of that is all of that has died. I mean, I, I have I really am kind of sick and really sad and sick at heart, I should say, about the the toxicity in Washington. There is no there's no 
getting together anymore. There's no coming together. And I think I've got to hope that in uh, in, the, in the days ahead that President Obama and uh, Speaker John Boehner at least uh, can can work out at least a tentative limited deal so that the stock market doesn't go crazy and the country doesn't go back into recession. That is the biggest difference. Uh, now somebody's got to win and somebody's got to lose. And uh, if if and it can be the American people if if we're not careful, and more often than not, that's exactly what happens. There's always, from a polyoptics perspective, a uh, a rollout plan, an idea that you can communicate whatever it may be. It could be a rollout of the next cabinet uh, selections by the Obama administration. It could also be something uh, surrounding intelligence information. And I don't want to go backwards to Benghazi, although Susan Rice is still top of news this week with her withdrawal from contention for the uh, Secretary of State spot. But what I'm, what I'm getting at is that there's a process to things, that certain members of Congress should be alerted before an announcement is made, there should be consideration. But at the speed of communications today, if somebody is briefing on background to a reporter in your newsroom, Tom, and that starts to get out via Twitter or Facebook or them going on a cable news channel, it can upend a detente of communication that should be have already gone on. It's just very, very difficult calculus. Absolutely. Uh, the, the, that calculus has really, really changed, which is why uh, Congressional leaders are always grumbling about uh, notification not in a timely manner, but that is the reason why oftentimes that the White House will will brief late because they they don't want to scoop themselves. Uh, exactly. And, uh, you can you can you can uh, you can tweet. You can uh, you can get it out w- within seconds or half minutes, and so it's. Uh, it, uh, it's great, but it's a, it can also be a two-edged sword. The uh, the anchor of uh, the press pool here on POTUS, uh, Julie Mason, former uh, White House uh, reporter for Politico, somebody who you know, she has decried the lateness of the Carney briefing for for many, many, many months now. And this is what we've come to know. And, and you've experienced in the Clinton administration. But you just gave us some insight into the optics of why they wait. It's not intransigent sometimes. Sometimes they just can't get out in front of themselves. Right. Are they, are, they're this fearful of having it uh, of having it leak because once you tell the Hill, uh, it can go viral more more or less instantly. But you know you're right about to Carney. His briefings are just uh, uh, are very late. I call him the late Secretary Carney, and I don't mean that with any disrespect because the all time champ of that was Jody Powell. Uh, we called we called Jody Powell in the Carter days the late the late Secretary Powell because there were there were two times. I once uh, was quoted and I heard about it from Powell later. I was once quoted in some newspaper as saying there are two kind of kind times, clock time and Powell time. And Powell time is a minimum of thirty minutes uh, after the clock you know, on Josh, a good day. Josh King, uh, the the co host of this broadcast, founder of uh, polyoptics.com. Josh, you lived through that in the Clinton administration, but uh, you have to admit that uh, the, the nature of being behind or not in front of yourself is, a, is an optical element of a press strategy now. Well, that's right. I mean, I think Tom would agree that when President Clinton came into office, uh, both George Stephanopoulos and Dee Dee Myers were sort of fresh off the campaign and weren't used to the rhythms of what happened in the, uh, in the press briefing room. And sort of Mike McCurry got that straight, and he also whatever problems there were, Tom, would deflect them with a healthy dose of, of humor, which I think Tony Snow also did in the Bush years. But 
uh, you can be late uh, and you can be a little bit behind, but as long as you know how, as Jody Powell did, know how to crack a smile and, and put everyone at ease, you can mollify some of those uh, sort of tough edges, can't you? Uh, well, that's true, but after a while, it really gets kind of annoying, especially if you're not if you're not one of those reporters who stays in the briefing room all day long because they have to, and you uh, work out a schedule, and then uh, five minutes away from the White House by uh, by cab, you get the message saying it slid for 45 minutes. Uh, after a while, it starts to starts to grind on you. So, uh, well, it, it it can start to grind on you, Tom. But again, you know, it's. And you want to be respectful of your job and the jobs of your colleagues and the deadlines that you all face. But sometimes you can't walk into the lights knowing that you're in a live broadcast uh, because it's not a uh, it's not a background session. It's not a gaggle. It is a live event that uh, any any misplaced word can trip you up, as I think you've wonderfully documented uh, recently with uh, Susan Rice. And, you know, your headline for USA Today is. Susan Rice exit is more complicated than it seems. Can you share with our listeners why it's more complicated than just a woman who said, who called the president or called uh, the national security advisor and said, you know, I just don't think I'm going to put my name in for this. Uh, yeah, and I'd be happy to. I've seen this movie before many, many times over the years. Uh, anybody who thinks that this was Susan Rice's idea is uh, is is been on another solar system for quite a while. This is the this is one of the time honored rituals of Washington. <clears throat> well, when when good news is there, the president announces it. When bad news is there, it's uh, it. It comes out in a written statement, and it's almost always somebody else's idea. This was not Susan Rice's idea. The White House and the president understood that uh, she had just too much baggage, and he has any any new pres any president, even one who's won a significant victory like Obama uh, to a second term, has only so many chips to expend, so much capital to 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 husband, and uh, she would have been a nightmare in terms of. Uh, Congressional senatorial confirmation hearings dragging on forever and ever and ever. I have to tell you, Adam, I've gone to a few presidential press conferences in my day, and the press conference that Obama had on the 14th, uh, uh, eight days after he was reelected, uh, where he really stuck it to Senator John McCain and Senator Lindsey Graham and for their criticism of Rice, and he said it was outrageous and they ought to come on. Attack come, him. Come after me, and, and, and I'm paraphrasing, come after me instead of picking on a woman who was just doing her job. And, and I thought it was very telling when he said, if I decide that she's the best person for that job, I will nominate her. I haven't made that determination yet. And the, I haven't made that determination yet was very telling to me. I came away f- saying, feeling that uh, there was no way Rice was going to be nominated. And what Obama was doing is signaling at least uh, to my perception, that uh, she was a goner. And that's why I wrote something that said she was on borrowed time from the moment that that Obama wrapped his his arms around her rhetorically. Now, I believe his defense of her was real and heartfelt. I don't think that was an act. But the notion that that if he decided she was was the right person, she was going to be nominated, no matter what John McCain and Lindsey Graham thought, I think that was not the case. I think she was a goner, and I think he was signaling in the Washington way. It just reminded me also of 1972 when Tom Eagleton, who was George McGovern's running mate, uh, it became known that Eagleton had... uh, 
had, uh, as a younger man, had had electroshock therapy treatment for, for depression and other uh, emotional disorders. And Obama, uh, McGovern said he was going to stand behind Eagleton a thousand percent in the celebrated line. A thousand percent. It's like Rick, it's like George, uh, Mitt Romney and his $10,000 bet. A thousand percent. <laughs> and within days, Eagleton was asking McGovern to drop him from the uh, from the ticket. That's just not the way it works. It's 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 another little convention that I wrote about was uh, uh, what happens. And this I, I have personal experience in this in this one. Uh, I I did a I did a was asked to interview for the job of Assistant Secretary of Defense for Public Affairs for Cap Weinberger. And uh, I don't think I flunked the interview, but I think he did, frankly, because uh, uh, he basically said to me, I don't like the press. I don't like to do a lot of interviews. I just want a guy who knows the press who will keep him away from me. I'm not sure. I didn't feel like that was a real career uh, advancer for me. But two days later, one of Weinberger's closest aides said uh, he loved you and the secretary is prepared to nominate you uh, if you're prepared to accept and that was the first time I was exposed to this other Washington convention. That's right. No one asks it's a question they don't already know the answer right, to. Right. Exactly right. And if you, you're not going to be nominated unless you tell them you accept, because that way they can say, no, no, he, you know, he wasn't offered the job and turned us down. I mean, it's just, it's just one of those little things. It's the way Washington works, right, and that's what happened with Susan let's, Rice. Let's let's look into our, our crystal ball. Uh, and I had a, a, a sort of trial balloon that I wanted to trot out for you and for Josh as well. But among the, the chess that's been going on behind the scenes that uh, happened before uh, the, the Susan Rice withdrawal, we, we think about, okay, there's the National Security Advisor, there's State, there's Defense, the President still has to name a new de- Director of Central Intelligence, and there could be other things. Um, assuming for a second that a lot of those pieces started to look like you knew where they were going to go with Susan Rice moving around within them, uh, potentially, who else should we be looking at optically? Does Jay Carney need to be looking for a new job? Does the president need a new spokesman in that press briefing room? Uh, I don't think so, and I don't think Jay is looking. Now, the, now the shorthand, and I haven't asked Jay about this, so this is just what I would call press room buzz, locker mm-hmm. room chatter. The buzz is that Jay wants to hang around for you know a few months, uh, but he he does not. Uh, the president likes him. They play cards together on Air Force One. I don't think Jay is un- under any uh, pressure to leave, uh, with the possible exception of his wife Claire Shipman. Uh, you know, these are Jay once uh, once came to a White House Correspondents Association party, and he offhandedly uttered one of those absolute truths. He said, "These government jobs are like dog years." Meaning, yeah. uh, you know. Well, Josh King, you suffered through that and these moments going into a second term in the Clinton administration. What do you think about the uh, the, the wisdom of Tom DeFrank and, and, and the polyoptics of the cabinet shuffle and other big jobs about to happen? Well, I did, uh, I did six uh, years in the White House, which if, in dog years, that's about 42. Mm-hmm. And that was certainly enough for me when I was ready to uh, orchestrate the pardoning of the Thanksgiving turkey for the seventh time. <laughs> and... Uh, I see where Jay is coming from. You know, if you think about the rhythm of White House press secretaries over the past three administrations, the average tenure is between, you know, one and a half and two and a half years. And you you only need so long in that post to check the box and to create the rest of your career based on, on that position. And as Tom appropriately points out, 
that it's uh, it is a grind. It's a terrible grind. I remember a story uh, that has stuck with me forever. And of course, I've not done a good job of. of following the advice, but some of you may remember a terrific NBC correspondent in the old days, in the golden age of TV, named Frank McGee, and, and after a long and successful career, he passed away, and I'm told the story secondhand, I wasn't there, but as it came down to me, uh, his son, one of his, one of his children, I think it was one of his sons, said at the eulogy, I know my father was a great man, he said, however, I didn't know that because uh, he was always with you people. Mm. And uh, I, every time I tell that story, I get the uh, same thing happens here, Adam. Adam can see the chills on my arms and my legs. But, there, but, but there's an analog to government service. I'm amazed. I'm amazed that anybody in these high-level government jobs or even any government job has the time to talk to reporters. I was always amazed that Jim Baker, uh, when he was Ronald Reagan's chief of staff, uh, spent the amount of time he did talking with reporters every every week and uh, often every day. It just ate up his schedule. Now, I think it worked very well for Baker and it worked very well for the president. It worked uh, very well for Petraeus, too, for a long time, didn't it? Exactly right. I mean, access is... Access is 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 very smart. I mean, I I can remember uh, even Richard Nixon, who was no fan of the press, used to tell his um, his aides, uh, uh, "We've got to we've got to deal with the press because uh, they hate us, but maybe the press will, coverage will be a little better." I even remember in the darkest days of Watergate, when I was a was a journeyman White House person, the backup to our White House guy at Newsweek, uh, the Nixon White House designated each one of one of the th speechwriters to be the kind of the the backgrounder for the news magazines. I can't remember who did who who did who, but Ray Price, Pat Buchanan, and uh, I forgot, and Bill Sapphire, each dealt with the news magazines every week, and they were authorized to give them a little. Here's what Nixon had for lunch, or this is what happened in the phone call uh, uh, with the, the nuggets. Israeli, yeah, nugget. They're called nuggets, giblets. What one of my competitors used to call raisins for the pudding. These kind of things. <laughs> but but that was a fairly enlightened. in the newsroom. That was a fairly enlightened view from a guy who didn't like the press, but knew that that if you feed the press, they may treat you a little bit better. But but they'll always bite the hand that feeds we, you if there's a story started, to be done. We started this conversation, uh, just me reminiscing for a second about having met you as a younger man. That house that we uh, that we sent David uh, Beckwith off from, uh, that my, my parents owned, was formerly lived in by President uh, George H.W. Bush when he was uh, director of the CIA. Um, before he had moved to the Naval Observatory. And uh, your relationship with 41 uh, and watching 43 and thinking about George P. Bush and his political aspirations that are starting to sprout up, it mirrors this relationship that we talked about with the folks who manage the press, who are at the highest levels of government, who trusted in you to have a personal relationship to be able to talk about the news, but also to share context of other things. How is the former president, we don't have a great deal of time left, I want to bring you back on this issue, but what do we know about him? He's been in the hospital recently. Uh, he's been in the hospital for much of the last month, in and out. Uh, as recently as a couple days ago, he was still still in the hospital. He's, uh, he's, he's struggling. He's struggling. He's 88 years old. Uh, and uh, he's had this bronchitis problem for quite some time. It developed into pneumonia. They, uh, The doctors did a, some sort of a 
procedure that made it better, and then he's just he's struggling. Uh, his friends are saying it's not life threatening, but he's he's frail. I uh, uh, the last time I saw him was in October of last year at a at a conference at the Bush Library at Texas A and M University. My my alma mater. He invited you up over the summer. That didn't work he out. He invited it? me. Uh, he he was going to see me in August in Kennebunkport, and the day that I arrived for a lunch with one of his aides, uh, I was told there are good days and bad days, and this is not one of the good days. Uh, and so even though I was in the compound at Kennebunkport, had a delightful lunch with uh, Gene Becker, his chief of staff, that's as close as I got to him. And I th- I thought that was sad and compelling, but, but, but sad and poignant because Bush 41 has been extraordinarily decent to me. I've, I've been dealing with him since November of 1974 when I was traveling with Henry Kissinger China. In, in in China. Yeah. So uh, as we leave you here on polyoptics, I ask you one question as we look at the new year. Will Tom DeFrank be braving the cold weather at the inauguration uh, in on the 21st of January? I suspect so, but uh, those sorts of things are for what at Newsweek were described as long-legged kids, and I am neither any longer. But uh, um, it's it's pretty hard uh, pretty hard to pass up things like that, pass up the spectacle. I, I think suspect you'll see me out there uh, uh, in more than one venue uh, that day on the twenty we'll first. Uh, Tom DeFrank, uh, New York Daily News. Thank you for being with us on Polyoptics. I'm delighted to be here, and thank you. Mm-hmm.